Well, good morning. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've been watching something or you've been doing something or working on something and then uh, that thing just clicks or it pops out to you? And it's been there the whole time, but you're like, no way. Like, okay, it was that, that simple. Like um, those little metal puzzles where you got two pieces and like intertwined and you have to figure out the perfect little way to twist them to get them apart. And then you've been doing it for half an hour and then there's that one little tweak and they come apart. And at first you're like excited and you're celebrating. You're like, yeah. And then you're terrified because you realize you got to get them back together again. Or maybe, uh, maybe these guys right here, uh, stereograms. Growing up, I used to stare and stare and stare and stare at these and I could never get them to do anything. And then in fifth grade, I guess there's something weird in fifth grade where your eyes cross just right. And I could see it ever since then, man, I could pick them out. Like, I can't do, I tried it on the projector and I couldn't make it work. So if you're trying really hard right now, don't beat yourself up, okay? Uh, but if you've never had one be successful, you can go online and they make these and there's the little red lines at the top. And all you do is stare at those and make those come together and then look down at the picture. So if you've never had that opportunity, there you go. Now you can go find one and experience that. The reason I bring that up is because today we're going to look at the life of Paul. Uh, we're in a series called Founders, uh, looking at New Testament leaders, the founders of our faith. And when I was in seminary and I was studying the life of Paul, there was a moment in Paul's life that was very similar to that. Just a nugget kind of hidden in there that I'd never seen before that after getting some time to really look at it and study and look at the impact it may have had in his life was just one of those aha cool moments. So starting with the beginning of Paul's life, uh, he was a driven legalist. We see that he is out there. He is hard driving. He is making a name for himself. He's climbing the ladder. And it starts from the early foundations. He tells us in Philippians 3. I can't actually see that from the angle, so I'll just flip there. He tells us in Philippians 3 that from the beginning, he was ready to go. He was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So from the very beginning, he's like, man, I was built for this. I am a thoroughbred to chase after being a Pharisee. And then we see building on that, he persecutes the church. And so the, the moment that you see Paul then Saul really enter the picture is, is at the execution, the stoning of Stephen. And so there's the gathered council, the Pharisees, and they're unhappy with Stephen uh, preaching and pronouncing Jesus as Messiah. And so they run him out of town. They're, they're gnashing their teeth at him. They lay their robes down at the foot of Saul, and then they stone Stephen. And Stephen, much like Jesus, his last words are, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't understand what they're doing. And the verse that reads that Stephen takes his last breath is immediately followed by, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And that looks like this catalytic moment for Saul, because just a couple of verses later, it says, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. 
So he's just going after it. He's got the system figured out. He's pleasing the right people. And eventually, I guess he kind of ran out of people to drag to jail in Jerusalem. Because then he goes to the high priest and he asks, hey, can I go, I guess, keep his prison ministry going and head to Damascus and find more people to drag off into prison that are believers. And so we see his trip to Damascus. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here we go. I'm after this place is conquered. Let's go off to another one. And yet on that road to Damascus, he comes face to face with Jesus. And his purpose, his bent, his motivation, everything begins to radically change. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, well, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And so the guys he's traveling with guide him into the city, still blind, And he spends a couple days and he's sitting and he's praying and God gives him a vision of a man, a believer named Ananias who will come and restore his vision. And so God goes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I've prepared a man named Saul for you to go to. And Ananias pushes back and he's like, whoa, whoa, hey, God, I've heard of this guy. He has a really, really effective prison ministry and I don't want to be a part of it. And here's God's response to Ananias. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and he entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And so we see the Spirit enter him, we see his sight restored, and he's set on a new mission. And later Paul just goes out to live this faithful life as a missionary. And as he recounts what that life looks like, looking back, he says, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all of the churches. 
And so we see this life that went from hard driving to make a name for himself to one of consistent sacrifice and service of others that the name of Jesus may be made known. And as he's on death row, as he's finished well, in 2 Timothy, he looks back and he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. And so if you were to look at that overview of the life of Paul, it's pretty accurate. It's pretty exciting to see how God uses such a terrible, terrible driven person and completely transforms his life. But in that biography, largely written by someone else, captured in the book of Acts, we miss this little part of his life. That he mentions in Galatians 1, and that's where we're going to be. If you brought your Bible with you, you can turn to Galatians 1, and we'll start in verse 10, where he gives an account of his own life. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would, be, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral transgression traditions. But when he who set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter and stayed with him. 15 days. Did you catch it? There's a section in there where he had significant time away. Look at it. Starting in verse uh, 15, he says, but when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Here you go. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia, to the desert, to peace, to solitude, to time away with God, and returned once more to Damascus. And three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter. If you read in Acts 9, it completely jumps that three-year period. It looks like he was converted, he was fed, he was strengthened, and then he started ministering in Damascus. And the people there, the, the Pharisees there, they didn't care for him, so they went to drive him out of town, and his friends lower him down in a basket through the wall, and he goes to Jerusalem. 
But when you read Paul's account, there's this three-year period where he steps out of the busy life and he gets away to be with Jesus. Chuck Swindoll in his book on Paul spoke of what he thinks this time of, of pulling away may have looked like for Saul. And he says, once Saul left Damascus and slipped into Arabia, he began taking inventory. There was no to-do lists, no six fast steps to success or other self-help scrolls clumped under his arms. He was alone. He walked slower. He watched the sand swirl over the stones. He thought deeply about his past. He relived what he had done. He returned to what he had experienced on the road to Damascus. He considered each new day a gift from the Lord, the perfect opportunity to rework his priorities and rethink his motives. It takes time, of course, lots of time. But time spent in solitude prepares us for the inevitable challenges that come at us from the splintered age in which we live. And isn't that true today? In an overclocked, frenzied, crazy, pressure-ridden society that we practice stepping away. That we have that time of solitude with Jesus. I think there's a lot of things that we see in Paul's life that probably came out of this time of tranquility, this time away with the Lord. But there's three in particular that I want us to look at today. Transformations that come out of tranquility. One is that it brings humility. Two is that it increases our depth. And also that it sharpens our focus. So as we look at humility, I want to go back to this exact passage in Galatians 1, where Paul is laying out his former manner and his new manner of life. In verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? For if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I think that word still there is huge because he points. He's, I used to do this. This is what I was about. If it wasn't pleasing specific men, it was pleasing the system that men had put in place. And he says, if I was still about that, I couldn't be a servant of Christ. And then in verse 13 and 14, he says, you've heard of my former manner of life, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing beyond many of my contemporaries. I was more extremely zealous. And yet in 15, we see these three powerful words, but when God. And he shifts drastically. And he says, but when he set me apart, when he called me through his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me, then he's in his right position. And he says that I might preach him. His time away changed his perspective of who he is and what his relationship to the world and to God was. And it's a pattern that's not just 
to Paul. You see it with Moses. He's pulled out of the fast, frenzied, important life of being in the Pharaoh's home, and he's taken away to the desert to be a shepherd for 40 years. Or you see it with David, who as a teen was anointed and was told, you will be king of Israel, and then spends years in solitude and in caves, running from his life, wrestling with God. Or even Joseph, who unrightly gets put into prison and spends that time in confinement away with the Lord. It's important for us in a society that tells us, man, your life is so dependent upon you. Everything is on your back. You can't step away. If you step away, everything's going to fall apart. And even if you do step away, while you're away, things are just going to keep piling up because you're so important and you're so needed. And yet intentionally taking that time to pull away reminds us, oh yeah, life's not dependent on me. God's in control. And I'm a servant of his. I'm reminded as I think about getting away and and reorienting uh, Psalm 4610. It says, be still and know that I am God. Or Isaiah 30, 15, uh, where God is talking to Judah for not trusting him, for not turning to him, but turning to Egypt for their, their security and for uh, their strength. And God says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in the, the other experts that are out there, the other authorities that are out there, the systems of achievement that tell us we're doing great and we're, we have it all in control. And yet it's in returning to God and in resting and in quietness and in trusting in him that we truly find strength. Solitude, time away, tranquility with God. It brings humility, but it also increases our depth. Okay, here's the really awkward time where the big goofy guy tells us how important it is to be quiet and grow in our depth, all right? So one way that we grow in our depth is in our deep knowing, our deep thinking. Our fast-paced society has really hampered our ability and is changing our ability to be able to do that. The National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke has said that improving our ability to multitask actually hampers our ability to think deeply and creatively. The more we multitask, the less deliberative you become the less you're able to think and reason out a problem. And then a professor, Clifford Nass at Stanford, kind of explains the physiological workings behind that. He says, the neural circuits devoted to scanning, skimming, and multitasking are expanding and strengthening, while those used for reading and deep thinking with sustained concentration are weakening and eroding. We can't help but live life at the pace that it runs, but we can pull away to practice those times of silence and solitude and deep thinking and meditating 
Our God is a very, very deep, expansive God. He can't just be experienced and explained in constant 30 words, 30 characters or less type experiences. You know, I think of Paul and I think of the new mystery of the church that he revealed. And I think about the deep truths of the gospel of grace that he brought to the Gentiles, to the nations. And the time it must have taken to just marinate and chew and think and process to own them with the clarity and the conviction that we see throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10 speaks of the importance of our deep knowing of God because it says, just as it is written, things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined are the things God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed these to us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. There's a depth to our God that we have access to. But we need to pull away and practice thinking deeply on and with him. But in depth, it's not just deep thinking. It's also deep intimacy that takes intentional time away. Uh, in studying romantic relationships, the University of Virginia found that people who spend regular quality time with their partner are three and a half times more likely to report being very happy in their relationship. Oh, imagine that. Parenting. The National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse says the fast pace of modern day family life can make it easy to forget that spending focused time with our children is really important. It increases self-esteem. It increases relational bonds. It increases communication. And it decreases likelihood of risky behavior. And Jesus calls us into intimacy, into that focused, intentional time with him. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my load is not hard to carry. As we intentionally pull away into times of solitude and intentional focused time for thinking and for spending time with God, we deepen our ability for understanding, for intimacy, and ultimately leads to rest and to peace in him. The deep, well-known philosopher Winnie the Pooh once said, Do nothing, doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. I think he might have been onto something. So spending time alone in solitude, in tranquility and obscurity, uh, it increases our humility, it increases our depth, and it sharpens our focus. This week, I had the chance to attend a two-day workshop on strategic leadership. Uh, where a bunch of us, a bunch of the pastors from the church got together and we uh, studied a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution. And it talked about how do you balance 
the demands, the responsibilities of everyday life while also being able to carry forward goals or values or things that you want to emphasize uh, in your organization. And so it really laid those two things side by side. And it said there is, I thought it was appropriate, there is a whirlwind there on the left of just daily tasks. Uh, I, I could definitely relate to the daily responsibilities of my life being a whirlwind. But then alongside that, as we do life, there is this desire to want to move forward in values and in strengths and in goals in our life. The interesting thing is that our goals and the number that we have are directly related to how many we can accomplish with excellence. So if you have two to three goals that you're pushing for alongside the whirlwind, you're likely to accomplish two to three of them with excellence. If you have four to 10 goals that you're trying to accomplish, you're likely to achieve only one to two of them. And then if you have 11 to 20 goals that you're trying to accomplish, you are likely to achieve zero. Because the more scattered and diverse our focus becomes, the less we're actually able to accomplish. I love this because as we look at Paul and his, his focus and his approach to life in Philippians 3, he really addresses both of these things very well. First, he talks about the goal. And he starts in verse 8 and he says, More than all of that, more than anything, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That I may gain Christ. That I may be found in him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That, that not, not have I obtained this or have already become perfect, but I press on that I might lay hold of that. I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but what I do is forgetting what lies behind. I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we, so we see Paul, his emphasis, his goal is that he would know Christ. And yet he also acknowledges the whirlwind. In verse 16, he says, however... Let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So as we've lived, as we've walked with God, as we've been a part of his people, there are certain standards, certain moral convictions and deep understandings that we've arrived at. And so he says, yeah, keep living by that. But don't lose sight of the goal to know Christ. And I think it's in stepping away. It's in removing ourselves from the constant flurry of all of the things that are out there that we need to get done that we're able to be reminded of what's really important and narrow and sharpen our focus. I think of uh, Jesus when they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest law? And he says, two things. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love, your neighbor is yourself. So as we consider the importance of getting away, of, of carving out these times of solitude with the Lord, there's two ends of the spectrum that I really want to emphasize or focus on. And one of those is the person who's stuck 
on the treadmill of life in high gear and feels trapped and can't get away. To you, I would encourage you to slow down and get away. And I don't mean the pace of life, because that's not always possible. But I mean finding that intentional time to step out, get off of the treadmill, slow down and step away. And the pace may be so crazy right now, you may need an extended day to do that. I mean, we'll get sitters for going on date nights or find a sitter for an important thing that comes up at work. Maybe it's time to get a sitter or find a close friend or your spouse who can carve you out that day, that full day to get away, to walk slowly, to think deeply, to watch the sand swirl on the stones and begin to reorient who you are before the Lord and deepen your thinking and your intimacy with God that your focus may be narrowed. And then the other end of the spectrum uh, is for the person who feels stuck in obscurity. The person who feels overlooked and insignificant. And to you, I would say, have hope and press in. This might be your time of wilderness like Moses or your time in the cave like David or in prison like Joseph. Don't isolate. Don't let these feelings push you into a place where you forget to lower yourself before the Lord alone with him. And as his timing, he will raise you up. At this time, uh, the worship team is going to come back up and we are going to close in response and just declare our desire to get alone with God. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for this summer and the opportunity to look back at founders of our faith, leaders in the New Testament. I thank you for their great testimonies of the lives that they've lived, specifically today for Paul. And for this nugget that you've buried in a couple of verses that he got away to the desert of Arabia with you. And as we see Jesus so often pull away to spend time in the quiet with you, I pray that you would just increase the value of that in our lives. Help us be committed to it. And as we make a priority and we press into that and into you, that you would transform us and change us. In Jesus' name. Amen.